welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in 1 John now, having done an introductory message last week, and we open now the first portion of this, this uh, deep and, uh, well, Christ-exalting epistle. We're going to go through 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. Hear with me the Word of God. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's mighty word. May it have its full impact on our hearts. Pray with me. Father, thank you for... The, the perfect plan that you had that day on the, on the shore of Galilee when the Lord Jesus turned to John, who had been following him from a distance for some time, and called John into deeper commitment and said, follow me. And when John dropped those fishing nets, little did he know that 60 years later he would pick up an ink and a, a quill and ink and he would lay out for us a life-changing epistle. The first of three, after he had already written a culture-changing gospel, the Gospel of John, and John, little knowing that a vision would come to him in the final years of his life, in his 80s, and he would bring for us revelation. Father, thank you for this man of God. I pray that we will understand more of his heart in the months that will be through his epistle. And I pray that we will see his Jesus, that we will know Jesus as we've never known him before. Father, help me, clothe me with the Holy Spirit, and let your word be opened so that your people see clearly your truth, and they are changed by your hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, last week, as I mentioned, we did do what I often do when I open a new book for you, pretty much always, and that is give you an overview of the whole book. And so we did a lot last week. A lot of people said they learned a ton. Well, I spoke a ton, and you were very patient. And uh, I gave you an overview of the book and talked about John himself. We uh, talked about two uh, basic uh, commitments that I find in this very complex book, there, were two, there seemed to be two pastoral reasons he wrote the book. The first I told you was to expose error regarding who Jesus is. The church was 60 years old and counting the, the inspiration for it and wrote it. And uh, the apostles had all gone to glory through martyrdom. John was the only one left of the original apostles who had been with Jesus. And the eyewitnesses to Christ were fast going to heaven and passing away. And there had been enough time for error and heresy and false teachers to start to bubble up. Whenever God's word gets preached and God's people get help, you can be sure that error and falsehood is right around the corner. And false teachers began to emerge, and they troubled the churches in, in Asia Minor that John was pastoring. And you remember, this, this epistle probably may have landed at the church of Ephesus, been preached or read at the church at Ephesus first, where John wrote it, and then sent out to the other six churches, and then copied and sent to the entire Christian world in that region, because they were all battling false teachers. And so the first point of his epistle as a pastor, was to expose the error that they were hearing about who Jesus is. Second was on an up note. 
John is confrontational about exposing error, but he is encouraging to the highest level to help us be, grow in our confidence in knowing the true Jesus. And so I told you that as we get through this epistle, you're going to see John reveal false Christianity, but also he's going to show you what I would call classic Christianity, the, the gospel-informed, Christ-inhabited life of faith, the original the thing that he wants to call all believers back to in every generation. And so this was placed in your New Testament because every generation of Christians faces untruth, faces getting off the path, and faces leaving true Christianity. And so this is all about classic Christianity. Now, I gave you a phrase last week. In fact, it was so important, I, I urge you to write it down. I've shared it with you a number of times from the platform. And the phrase kind of sums up a lot of John's passion. The phrase was this, quote, you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. You can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. That's the, the thesis of so much that he's going to be teaching us. These false teachers were giving people wrong understandings of who Jesus was, saying that he wasn't fully God. Some others were saying that he wasn't fully man. Some others were saying the work on the cross was not sufficient to pay for human sin, or that we didn't even have sin as a problem, and we don't need the Savior that Jesus is. They were in a multiplex of error, and it was swimming around their church, and it was all focused on on Jesus Christ and, and creating lies about him. And I said that Christ is crucial in your understanding. If you don't know who went to the cross for you, you cannot understand his forgiveness. And so I told you, in fact, to write it down. I said, write this down. You can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. And uh, it's important because it's what I call cross-crucial truth. Now, I have used that phrase in many different ministry settings to drive home the importance of knowing who true, the true Jesus is. And over the years, it has either repelled people from me or caused them to rejoice with me. I remember not too long, well, it was quite a while ago now that I think about it. I've been, I've been around here a long time. Uh, I'm starting to become part of the furniture. But anyway, um, uh, I knew that a, a certain couple had been invited to our church, and I, I, I don't change my message for anybody, but I happened to be in one of the passages in the Gospel of Luca, as I recall, that dealt with confusion about Jesus and falsehood about Jesus. And I knew that this couple had been invited, and I knew a little bit about their religious background, and I knew that they were universalists, that they believed that all men and women, regardless of religion or, or moral life or what they believed about Jesus or what they even believed about God, would, would go to heaven. Well, I didn't hold anything back, and um, I think a couple times in that message, I, I said, remember... Write it down. You can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God. I remember interacting with them after the service. They were livid. They were livid. They could hardly speak to me. They were so upset about the, that particular statement. In fact, my whole message turned them off. And as I remember, the, the guy that was there, the husband made a point of saying to me, you know what, I'm going to be teaching Sunday school in my church, my church, soon, and I'm going to teach the exact opposite of what you said. It, that was the basic tone, the implication of what he said. He didn't use those exact words, but I knew what he was trying to tell me. So it repelled them because they wanted a false view of Jesus. But on the other hand, if you understand who I believe Jesus is and who classic Christianity has taught who Jesus is over 2,000 years from this book, when you hear a phrase like that, you can't be wrong about Jesus and right with God, it'll cause your heart to rejoice and you'll resonate with it. Uh, this week, after I preached the message last week, um, I got a call from a, a friend in the church and, and she said, listen, you, you had a phrase in your message and you told us to write it down. I trusted my husband to write it down. He trusted me to write it down. And we didn't write it down. But it was so good. It, it spoke to us. Can you, can you give me that phrase? And I was happy to give it to her. And I trust today she has it written down. And I, I think our hearts rejoice in that because when we come to know the true Jesus, we have to come to a reckoning with ourselves. We have to understand the true us, which are sinful people in rebellion against a holy and perfect God. 
That's the only way you begin a pathway to Jesus Christ. And you understand that you're a sinner. You see your sin, as I often say, and you begin to seek your Savior. And you see Christ for the mighty Savior that he is. And so when you've come to know him as Savior, you've seen your sin and found your Savior, you love the truth about Jesus. And you're glad that God showed you at one point in your life, you know, your life is out of phase with me. I want you to get right with me. So, if you understand the true Jesus, rejoicing follows. Now, the challenge is, in our particular religious society, maybe you're wondering, with all the things going on spiritually out there, you might have a question in your mind, how do you find the true Jesus in a culture like ours? Because as I just shared with you, there are people in the culture, well-meaning people, uh, next-door neighbor people, that he is about Jesus. Now, people are studying our culture as never before, and religious thinkers are. And I read one a religious, religious scholar whom I respect this week, and he was thinking out loud and writing about the kind of world we're in today spiritually. He said this, quote, picture this setting, a world where people don't believe in absolute truth, where even Christians are relativists. In other words, they believe that all truth is, is essentially valid and there is no supreme truth from one God. Where theologians, are, new spiritualities are proliferating, where the idea that there is only one way of salvation is considered outmoded. Consider a world like that. And then he asks, what world are we describing? And of course, the answer is, well, this one, right? And then he, 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 he brings this question, can the gospel work in that kind of environment? Now, I pose the question to you as we begin, and we, we will look into John's words here, but I'm kind of giving you the context of the world to which he wrote them. The author says, can the gospel work in this kind of an environment, an environment where no one believes or few believe in absolute truth? where even Christians are relativists. Remember in that survey I told you last week, over 50% of evangelical Christians say that the Bible contains some truth, but it's not all true, that all points of truth are valid, and that the human mind makes its own decisions about what is truth for you. That's called relativism. That's a denial of absolute truth. That's not a Christian worldview, but many evangelicals have it. He says we're in a world like that today, where even Christians are relativists, where even Christian theologians are uncertain about Jesus. Are there popular theologians today that are uncertain about Jesus? You bet. That's kind of why they're popular, because people today love to challenge things. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright. Maybe you heard of him. Maybe he's a favorite of yours. I would caution you to about making him a favorite of yours. N.T. Wright has entranced a lot of people with some of his scholarship. He's a British scholar, and he's developed something called the New Perspective on Paul. Well, I think I have a problem with the New Perspective on Paul because it deconstructs the doctrine of justification by faith through grace that the church has taught for 2,000 years and which this, this book teaches. His new take on Paul is actually a deconstruction of that. Now, that's my opinion as a theologian. You might differ, but you need to be able to defend that. I would just basically like to say right is wrong. Did you catch the little play on words there? No, you didn't. N.T. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, is W-R-O-N-G. But people are entranced with that. And they don't understand when there's a little sliver of deception stuck in along 90% of truth. And so even Christian theologians are uncertain about Jesus and people are listening to them. Can the gospel work in a culture like that today where new spiritualities are proliferating, where the idea of one way of salvation that I talked about is viewed as outmoded? Remember the survey I shared with you last week? 40% of evangelicals believe there are multiple ways to God. So when you look at this this context today, and maybe you're asking the question, how can you find the true Jesus in this context? Can the gospel work in that kind of an environment? The answer I would give you emphatically is this. Yes, in fact, it already has. Not only are people still coming to the true Christ today, but the point of my illustration here is the world that I just described to you, a world where people don't believe in absolute truth, where even Christians are relativists, where theologians are uncertain about Jesus, where new spiritualities are proliferating from false teachers, where the idea that there is only one way of salvation is viewed as backward. That's not only our world today. Listen to me. That was the world of John the Apostle. 
That was the world of the churches that this epistle was, was designed for. It was the world that John walked in and ministered in. And he comes to them with warning, but he also comes to them with clarity and encouragement that, oh yes, you can find the true Jesus even in a relativistic culture. Because see, that was the Greco-Roman world at that time. Very similar to this time. In fact, every day when I read the paper or I take a look at the news, I look at my wife and I say, we're more Roman than ever before. We're becoming just like the Greco-Roman world of the past. Pluralism, relativism, those were the dominant thought patterns of that day. And yet the gospel conquered that world in 200 years and became the dominant truth force. So John is writing this to Christians in Asia Minor that were living in just as uncertain and just as changing a time as you and I are living in. And and he was saying to them in this epistle, look, I know that you're unsettled in your confidence in the gospel because of this ever-changing world and the truth claims that it's making or deconstructing or the truth denials that it's making. I know, believers, that you're unsettled when you, when you hear people say the things that are different about Jesus than I, the apostle, originally taught you, he said. That's what I, I know you're unsettled when they make different kinds of claims about Jesus. Therefore, I'm writing to you to show you the true Jesus. The two things, point out error about him and encourage you in the truth about him. And John wrote knowing that this epistle would encourage them. So the question might rise in your mind, can I ever really know that I know the true Jesus in a world like ours? My answer is absolutely. In John's words, yes, because this world was that world. I hope you see my extended point here. Another way to put this is, if spiritual confusion is your problem, then 1 John is your answer. It's interesting that of all the words that find their their way into this epistle of five chapters, the word that appears the most is the word know. K-N-O-W. You can know 37 different times. John says, know that this is error, or you can know this is true about Jesus. You can live in spiritual confidence. And I wanted to just kind of set the table for you about this, because this is John's passion. Now, the first four verses here, John comes out a preaching, doesn't he? This is a little different than some of the other epistles you've studied. It doesn't start out with a warm greeting like Paul does to the believers that he writes to, or Peter might. doesn't identify the writer. John knew that they knew who he was. And instead of a, a basic greeting or just kind of a, a format like that, John comes out firing. You read the first four verses and your hair kind of gets blown back. Mine did. I mean, I looked at that and I said, wow, Lord, this guy came out writing, preaching. In fact, he uses the word proclaim twice, verses two and three, and that's what he's doing here. He's giving you a rapid fire recitation of some of the great truths about Jesus. I think what he's doing is he starts out here in the very beginning by stating, beloved, this is the true Jesus. And if you believe the things I'm telling you in this, in this opening salvo, you know the true Jesus. So I looked at it that way and I thought, well, I want to preach this then in an if-then way, and I've done this before. I want to take the first four verses, and I found eight rapid-fire points of proof that you know the true Jesus. He tells us eight things that are true about the true Jesus. And if you believe and know these things, if you know this Jesus, then you know the true Jesus. So my if-then is going to be, if you believe this, then you know the true Jesus. The implication is, if you don't believe this, you may not know the true Jesus. And this is how John goes back and forth in his epistle. So that's how I'm going to do it today, if and then. Are you with me? Okay, we do this. That's fine. Good. So here I'm going to bring them to you in the kind of rapid fire way that John did. And I'm putting each of these eight into a statement that you'll see on the screen or on your app notes. Number one. John starts here in verse 1 of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, he says. Basically, his first point is this. If you believe in the Jesus the apostles knew from the beginning, then you know the true Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning. He makes a solid point here. 
that the truth about Jesus began with Jesus and is unchanged since then. I'll repeat, if you believe in the Jesus the apostles knew from the beginning, then you know the true Jesus. Note something else in these four verses. John uses first person plural. He talks about we all the way through. Who is he referring to? Himself and the original disciples who walked with Jesus from the very beginning. From the very beginning of John the Baptist's preaching, who introduced Jesus as the Savior of the world and the Lamb of God. From the baptizing in Jordan, from the early times of watching and listening to Jesus, all the way through the time when Jesus called them on the shore of Galilee into deeper discipleship, and the three years in which they followed him and listened to him and served with him and ministered with him and ate with him and, and just were, were part of everything, all the way through the great cresting time of his greatest teaching and the last year and a half of his ministry and then the dark days in which his crosswork came into view and they headed on that last final journey to Jerusalem and the opponents grew and the opposition grew and the hatred grew and the betrayal happened in the garden and, and all of that and the, the terrible last night of Jesus and then crucifixion day and the terrible three days of fear and disappointment and depression believing that it was all gone because Jesus was in the, in the tomb and then that marvel of the resurrection appearance in the upper room and the 40 days that followed of that, of the many other appearances and the full teaching and all of that. And then followed that by, by, by the arrival of the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised, who swept into their lives and altered them supernaturally so they began to see truth that they'd never seen and preached like they never could have and began to see the church grow and all the promises of God. And they all lived through the, the majority of the book of the Acts of the Apostles at this point by the time that John is writing. That's the beginning. That which was from the beginning. He said, we were all there. We were eyewitnesses to it. We were there from the beginning. And we bring to you a message. Listen, this has been very important. We bring to you a message that does not change. The truth about Jesus has not changed. It will not change. And you need to understand that anybody that comes to you and brings you a different message is bringing you a different gospel. So he's talking about the gospel age. Now, why is that an issue? Well, I told you last week that these churches were troubled by heretics, by false teachers who were coming in and saying, you know, this stuff that John the apostle may have seen and heard from Jesus is a good start. But you see, we have received new knowledge from God. The phrase today would be, we've gotten the download from God. We've had new revelation that adds on to this, and you need to know what we have heard because it adds to the gospel, and there are other things that you don't know that we do. What John said about Jesus was not fully true. He was not fully God and fully man. He couldn't have been God. What John said about sin, that's overdone. That's John's old crusty personality. God has revealed to us that actually we do, we do not have a problem with sin, that we're inherently good, that you can do good works that put you in a great standing with God, and on and on it went. So they were getting new revelation. And, and John is saying, listen, I don't care what anybody says if they come to your church and they say we have a new revelation, we have a word from God, we have a prophetic insight, we've got the new divine download, we have something more that is completely false. Because we tell you that the truth about Jesus has been from the beginning, and there's no change in that phrase. As one author I read this, this week put it, when it comes to Jesus, if it's new, it ain't true. You might want to write that one down. Now, you say, why is this an issue today? Because, like I said... Just in John's day, we have a proliferation of false teaching around our churches, on the internet, on the airwaves, in Bible studies, in, in, in other places, through publications, whatever, that is awash in untruth about God. There's all kinds of, of influences out there that will seek to try and change your mind with new revelation. It happens all the time. Now, um, I'm a particular target for that because I'm a teacher of the Word of God, and I've had encounters over the years with people that have tried to change my doctrine because they're living in deception. I remember some years ago in my ministry, uh, 
I'm a Bible teacher. I'm an expositor. And you know, what I do here is what I've done for 30 years. I just open the Bible verse by verse and teach it. I exalt Jesus in his cross. And um, there was a, uh, uh, my my secretary buzzed me one day and said, there's so-and-so is here to see you. And I vaguely recognized the name. And I said, acquaint me more with her. And she said, all I know is that she's been attending here for some weeks. And she, she said that she really appreciates your teaching and she has a gift for you. And she'd like a few minutes of your time. And so I, I walked in to the lobby there and there was this elegant, beautifully dressed elderly woman, beautifully coiffed with, with, with all kinds of jewelry and just, I mean, just dressed to the nines. And I did recognize her. I, I, do, I did remember seeing her in the audience for several weeks. And, uh, and she had next to her one of those gift bags that you bring to when you bring somebody a birthday gift. And, and she said, thank you for meeting me. I just want to take a few moments of your time. I, I, I have so appreciated your ministry. I have, a, I have a special gift for you. And I said, okay, well, let's step into the conference room and sat down. A little few pleasantries here and there. And then she said, you know, I've, I've been listening to you now for a number of weeks. And... Um, I uh, appreciate your, your desire to teach the truth. And she says, you've done a good, good job teaching the truth. But now I believe you're ready to go to a higher level. <laughs> and I'm here with a gift that has taken me to a higher level. And I want to give this to you. So my preacher instincts, and she pulled out the biggest, most ornate, most beautifully bound, most gilt-edged, coffee table-sized Book of Mormon I had ever seen. And she brought it out to me with a gleam in her eye, and she pushed this across the conference table to me, and she said, this will take you to the higher level. I can't wait to hear how you teach out of it. (laughs) I took my two fingers and I pushed it back to her and I said, I have no interest in that book. I have no desire for that book. Neither should you. And then I quoted to her from Jude. Jude 3 where Jude said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And I said, I preach a Bible that has been once for all delivered to me. There is no added truth to it. There is no exalted truth to it. I will live my life and never get close to even getting to the highest heights of it. The Bible has been given to us, dear one, as once for all delivered to the saints. And I might have even said, and that does not say not once, uh, not for, not once for all delivered to the latter-day saints. She was stunned. There was a teachable moment. She wouldn't receive it. She took that, slipped it back into the bag, stood up, gave me a long, long penetrating look and walked out. I never saw her again. Now, that, that demonstrates that there are people in every orbit who are very sincerely deceived. And, and deception has to be spoken to. No, if it's new about Jesus, it ain't true. First principle If you believe in the Jesus the apostles knew from the beginning, then you know the true Jesus. If you don't, if you've added on to him through whatever mysterious gospels you've found or any other added teaching, you may not. Second, if you believe in the teachings the apostles heard, then you know the true Jesus. The first point is about the nature of Christ himself, true teaching about the nature of Christ. And then he goes on, not only that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus in that phrase, but which we have heard, 
Now he talks about, he goes and talks about the senses in the next string of language here. What's he talking about? He's talking about everything they ever heard Jesus teach. What we heard, all of us as disciples, is the truth about Jesus. Akuo is the Greek word. And it was the basic word to listen to somebody, to, to perceive, to hear, to perceive through hearing. But it's in the perfect tense here. One commentator said, the perfect tense speaks of an abiding effect. When John wrote this letter, some 60 years had passed since he had last heard the voice of Jesus. And yet the words of his Lord continued to be an abiding truth in his heart. Imagine that you had heard Jesus speak in person like John did on the hillsides. Would not his majestic words continue to reverberate and resonate in your mind for the rest of your days on earth? I think they would. John and the other apostles had heard the very words of Jesus and they didn't need any more because they knew that they were the amazing words of God. In John 7, 46, even the enemies of Jesus said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And so John is saying, not only did we see the Jesus who stepped into time from eternity and who is unaltered in who he is, but we heard everything he taught. And it, it, it impacted us. It lives with us. It stays with us. It abides with us. And we, the implication is, and we don't need any of your truth false teachers. Now, that's an interesting thing about this. Um, it's what I call the truth transmission system. If you go to John chapter 14, in verse 25 and 26, Jesus is looking at the apostles on the, on the last night before he's crucified. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Let me pause there. What was the response of the disciples most of the time Jesus got the deep water truth in those days? Did they get it or were they a little bit clueless? Clueless, thank you. Insensible is a better word. And yet, he says, something's going to happen. A game changer is going to arrive. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That's a specific promise to the apostles. He was indicating, listen, you have heard me teach and soon I'm going to use you through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to put what I taught into words and into the New Testament. Not only will, you, will he bring to your, will he teach you all things, but he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus set up through the wisdom of the Father the truth transmission system. And it was, it was those guys being with him, those guys hearing him, later through the arrival of the Holy Spirit and his presence in their lives and over their lives, the Holy Spirit would guide them. He would bring back to their minds all that they heard and remembered and all that they didn't hear and needed to remember. And he would make them go, listen to this, from insensible to being able to write inerrant truth. That's a miracle. Because these guys were insensible. They just didn't get it most of the time. But they would go from being insensible to under the power of the Holy Spirit being able to write inerrant truth. And that inerrant truth is on your lap or on your tablet or on your phone today. It is the word of God. And John is saying, listen, listen, we not only saw him, but we heard him and we have put into writing and we have put into our teaching the truth we heard. And you don't need to go anywhere else. You don't need to go any farther. Now, because of that truth transmission system that has ended up now in this being with you. You have the end product of the truth transmission system. You don't need anything more than this. What's the enemy going to do? He's going to try and say, oh, yeah, you do. In fact, you can't even trust what you've got there. If he doesn't come at you through heresy, he's going to come at you through doubt of the word of God. Isn't that true? And that's happening today with all the higher critics and the historical people and people from the realm of science and philosophy and everything else trying to tear apart the reliability of the New Testament. Maybe you're reading about this. Maybe you're hearing about it. If you've been to one semester of college, you lived through it. So there's a tremendous attack upon the truth of the Scripture today. And in my generation... Uh, one of the most famous attempts at this was called the Jesus Seminar. How many have ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Oh, you need to hear about this so you can totally avoid it. 
It was begun by a New Testament quote-unquote scholar. I put that in heavy quotes. His name was Robert Funk, and, and I think he was in one in, in the 1970s when he came up with this. He gathered some of his non-believing friends together, and they held a seminar of these scholars that was created to examine the biblical gospels and to discover what Jesus truly said, to apply their rules to it, their, their skeptical way of handling history and, and text and everything else. And they wanted to say, well, you've got the four gospels, and you may even have a red letter edition of the, the four gospels. We're going to tell you what Jesus really said and what he didn't. And now, now it was comprised that the Jesus seminar was, seminar was, and I think it's still in existence today. They meet every few years for unknown reasons. And it was comprised almost entirely of individuals who deny the inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of the Bible and who don't know Christ. So guess what kind of a result you're going to get? A little bias there. The agenda of the Jesus seminar was not to discover who the historical Jesus was. It was to attack what the Bible clearly says about what he taught. And so they, what they did was they, they put all their brilliant heads together, went through the four Gospels, looked at all the words of Jesus, and they put them in categories based on what Jesus certainly said or based on what Jesus never could have said. So words in red would indicate words that Jesus most likely said. Then they put words in pink representing words that Jesus possibly said. Words in gray indicated words that Jesus likely did not say. And then finally, words in black represent words that Jesus definitely did not say. Now, just to give you a clue as to how this all ended up, if you take a look at their version of the book of John, the Gospel of John, written by this wonderful apostle who was an eyewitness who was closer to Jesus than anyone... Almost the entire Gospel of John in their version is in black. In other words, Jesus didn't say much of anything that you can know today or trust today. The Jesus Seminar. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's even offensive to think that a group of scholars today can more accurately determine what Jesus did and did not say than the author of the Gospels themselves. Here's the author of the Gospel himself in 1 John 1, 1, saying, that which we have heard, bank on it. Always the teachings of Jesus under attack. So the second principle is if you believe in the teachings the apostles heard, then you know the true Jesus. If you doubt the teachings the apostles heard, you may not know the true Jesus. I can see we have to speed this up. Here we go. Third, if you believe in the miracles that the apostles saw, then you know the true Jesus. You see, he goes on, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. Commentators believe John is shifting here from the teaching he heard to the miracles he saw. And he says, I saw these things happen with my own eyes. I saw healings. I saw people raised from the dead. I was in that room in Jerusalem when Jesus reached out his hand to that dead little girl and said, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. I was there. And I saw the supernatural power of one who was truly God, the God-man. And don't you doubt me, he said. I believe and I saw the miracles. He says, we've seen it with our eyes. The verb seen is in the perfect tense, just like the verb, verb that he used earlier for heard, signifying the abiding results of that effect. In other words, John was saying, I saw it and I have never forgotten it. It's been burned on my mind's eye. I was an eyewitness and people who will tell you today, these false teachers who say Jesus was not God. God would never occupy a human body. He was just a compelling philosopher, and we have truth just as good as his. John is saying, oh yeah, I saw Jesus raise people from the dead. I saw Jesus multiply the loaves and the fish. I saw Jesus heal time after time after time. Don't you come to me and say you've got some new teaching about Jesus. I was there. And then he uses a different phrase, and I looked upon him. That's a Greek word from which we get our word theater, theonomai. It meant to look upon him and, and gaze in wonder. John said, that was my daily life. Don't you tell me God didn't come to earth. Don't you tell me he wasn't the God-man. 
Christ's whole life was a theater of theology. And it was all predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Don't forget this. They predicted that when the Messiah does come, the one person who comes to the planet to be the Savior of the world, he would do these miracles. The Old Testament lists the kinds of miracles that he would do, and he was doing them constantly. So John is saying, if you believe in the miracles that the apostles saw, that I saw, that we saw, then you know the true Jesus. If you don't, I've got some questions about you. He was the Messiah. He went on. He's still a preaching, isn't he? And he said, fourth, if you believe in the risen one that the apostles touched, then you know the true Jesus. And then he goes and he says, not only did we see him with our eyes after having heard his teaching, this one from the beginning, not only did we look upon his miracles with this this gaze that we couldn't take our eyes off of limbs that had been made new or, or people that had come out of death back into life, we couldn't take our eyes off of that when Jesus basically created the ultimate miracle when we thought he was dead for three days and then all of a sudden boom he appeared in the upper room before us and he said reach out your hands and touch me and see that i am not a spirit it's the real me the real physical jesus john said when i saw that and we all reached out and touched him we knew we not only believed in a jesus who came to earth but a jesus who came back from the dead Don't you say that he's anything less. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. It's a beautiful rendition in the Greek. Touched with your hands. It meant to to run your hand over the surface and to squeeze to see if it was solid. That's what they did that night in the upper room. Because it shows that Jesus had a material body that he rose physically from the dead. I've told you this all the way through the end of the Gospel of Luke. That's critical for you because you're a person in physicality. You face physical death, and if you don't know a Savior that faced physical death and came back to physical life, you're going to have a problem. There were false teachers in John's world among the churches, and this is why he wrote this, that were saying that Jesus could not possibly have had a real physical body. Remember last week, they're called the docetists, pre-gnostic, and they believed that the body was, was evil. And Jesus, if he was the perfect God, couldn't possibly inhabit a body. So whatever body they saw was just kind of a, a mirage. It was a, a ghostly image, but he wasn't physically real. Well, he blows that up here. He says, oh no, our hands handled him. You see, we touched him. And that's important because if Jesus did not have a real human body, not only would your resurrection not happen, but he would not have been qualified to serve as a genuine atoning sacrifice for sins because such a sacrifice, according to God's, God's standards, demanded a perfect victim and the spilling of blood, the shedding of blood, the, the, the book of Hebrews says. So he was, he was taking apart heresy with each phrase, phrase after phrase. I hope you see that. Half of the professing Christian church today, liberal Christianity, now believes Jesus was not God. He was simply another historical figure who was an inspiring teacher, and he's dead and in the ground today. The most he's risen might have been as an idea. That's heresy. That's falsehood. John is saying, oh no, you need to believe in the risen one that we touched to know the true Jesus. Do you? Five. If you believe in the new life that we as apostles tasted, then you know the real Jesus. Now he shifts in verse 2. The life, and he uses the word life or eternal life a number of times here in these verses to talk about Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's interesting. Verse 1 focuses on Jesus who was upon earth. Verse 2, I think, focuses upon the Jesus within you. John said, not only did we know him, not only did we hear him, not only did we see him, not only did we touch him, but when he rose from the dead, he came into our hearts. He changed us, he altered us, and we tasted new life. Not just new belief, but new life. That is huge. That is huge. 
He goes on in the, in the fifth chapter, 1 John 1, 5, 11 to 12, and he says, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. It doesn't say he who has the Son is going to get eternal life. You have eternal life right now. You have the life, and who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let me ask you a question. When does eternal life begin? You might think it begins when you die and you step into heaven. Wrong. In a certain way, life in Christ has begun already. You've already received him into your heart and into your life, into your being, and into who you are. And, and I would wager he has begun to change you from the inside out. I hope that's true because that's what happens to Christians. And the life that you have tasted, the new life, the new joy, the new hope, the new peace, the new power, the new vision about what God wants to do, the new understandings every time you open the Bible and it moves right out of the page and into your mind and you understand divine truth. That's all because you now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Bible says, and you are now able to understand these things because he has come into you and given you new life. I'll tell you what, these false teachers didn't have new life. All they had was new ideas. It's about Jesus, but you have to know him personally. Your life changes, beloved. You believe in the new life that the, what we tasted and that we have today, 60 years later? You know him. That's important today. Because a lot of people say if you just believe the right things, you believe their new teaching. See, the false teachers had a lot of spiritual teachings, but they had no spiritual life. I know people that tell me, well, I went to such and such a church all my life. I've, I remember a lot of the teachings that were correct Christian teachings. I'm a Christian. I say, well, wait a minute. Is the new life of Christ manifest in you? I don't care what kind of teaching you sat under. I care what kind of new life Christ has birthed in you. If you believe in the new life the apostles tasted, then you know the real Jesus. Do you know that? Have you tasted it? Have you begun to see spiritual power and transformation in who you are? Jesus comes, and verse 2 says, when he shows up, new life comes too. It goes into eternity. He calls it eternal life in the middle of verse 2. But in chapter 5, he says, it starts now. It's a life sign, as I like to say. Okay, the last three. Number six, if you believe in the burden to proclaim him that the apostles had, then you know the real Jesus. Now he goes to verse three, that which we have seen and heard, everything we saw Jesus do, everything we heard Jesus teach, every command we had him give, and everything about the gospel that he taught us, we proclaim also to you. What is he saying there? He's saying, if you know the true Jesus, you will speak about the true Jesus. Remember the truth transmission system I shared with you? That they were the guys that were going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to recall all that Jesus said and, and go from insensibility to be able to, being, to put an inerrant uh, text together. Jesus looked at them on the final night, or, I, I mean, in resurrection, in glory, when he had appeared in the room, and he says, you guys are going to be witnesses of these things. So they received a direct command, and they were faithful for 60 years at this point. So they had to do that and did. And, and when they put this into writing, their teaching was all completed. And they, they went to the churches and they said, beloved, this is truth. Don't believe anything else. The churches then were responsible for taking it to the next generation. John was about ready to die. And he was saying, listen, I have proclaimed this to you. Now I want you to proclaim it to others. You've got to take the truth transmission system into the next generation. Did they succeed or fail? Well, you're all sitting here today. They succeeded. What's the greatest truth transmission system in history? It ain't the internet, and it's certainly not going to be artificial intelligence. We already know that. It is this marvelous power of the Holy Spirit coming into the life of a new believer and that person sharing the gospel and the truth of God's word to the next person, to the next generation. It has gone person to person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest viral movement of all time. And the Bible tells me that it will continue to go on until Jesus returns. Now the point here, application-wise, is this. 
If you know Jesus, listen, you're going to have a burden to talk about him. You are, because that's part of having new life. That's part of hearing the words of God, having them change your soul. That's part of seeing God do mighty works in your life, miracles even today, and knowing that Jesus is alive. You can't hold that in. I'll put it to this way. You might want to write, write this down. If you know Jesus, you speak Jesus. That's another point, a part, way of put, to put into words what he's saying here. We knew Jesus, we know Jesus, and we cannot but speak Jesus to the beloved, to the believers, so we can have fellowship with each other, the second part of verse 3, but the implication is we proclaim him. We're a proclaiming people. Christians don't shut up about Jesus. They don't hide their faith about Jesus. They don't tell the world, oh, you must be right about Jesus, I'm wrong about Jesus. They boldly take their faith in their hands, and they say, no, this is what I believe. You need to know and see your sin and seek your Savior. If you know Jesus, you speak Jesus. And dear ones, that's going to get harder and harder. We know this. We've been in a privileged set of generations in a Christian permissive country. That's all changing. We know it. But one thing will not change if Christ is in you. And you know Jesus, you will have a compulsion to speak Jesus. If you believe in the burden to proclaim him that the apostles had, then you know the real Jesus. If you have no burden to proclaim him, I've got some questions. Now fortunately, around the world, the the vast majority of the evangelical church is ahead of us. They're already well into suffering. They're already tasting the deeper edges of persecution. With less Bible knowledge than we have, they are manifesting magnitudes more boldness than we have. Now, you can be convicted about that, as I have been, as I've been out of the country and I've gone and been in persecuted areas and dealt with pastors and and met them. But you can also be inspired to know that the only, the Holy Spirit that's in them with this boldness is the same Holy Spirit who's with me. A life-changing episode in my life in 2015, I'm sorry, 2005, I was in the Christian radio business at that time and I was a radio talk show host and and I was uh, asked to go to the most persecuted place in Africa, northern Nigeria, on a high security, somewhat secret trip with a number of other radio hosts to go into the high country of that part of the persecuted Nigerian church and to meet and interview pastors who had survived the great waves of persecution that had started in 2004. Hundreds and hundreds of people slain. And I remember going on that trip and, and uh, I was not ready for what I saw in terms of the evidence of the atrocities, the burned out churches, the blood-stained floors, the grave sites I visited and prayed over, the horrendous stories I'd heard. But I was even less prepared for the mighty, mighty power and courage that I saw in the men and women of the churches of northern Nigeria. It was breathtaking. I remember riding in the back of the car of one of the the, the spiritual leaders in the town of Jos, Nigeria. And uh, we were riding along, and you know, usually they point out the parts of their city that they want you to see, the, the beautiful buildings or the, the, the nice tourist areas. Well, there aren't any in Jos. It's been burned out. But I remember him driving me along in that city, and we'd, we'd stop at a light, and he'd say, oh, here's where so-and-so, a friend of mine, was tied and then they put a gasoline-soaked tire around his neck and they lit him on fire for Jesus. We drive on farther. There's where so-and-so died. They macheted him until his arms were taken and his blood came out. Later that day I learned that my host, when his friends had been killed in that way, resigned and went to take their place because one of them was the leader of a church in Joss. He left his job 
and went to take the place of people that had been slain like that. And he's driving me through the city and telling me these stories with an attitude of calm and vision that's impossible to describe. Story after story I could share, but I came home from that trip stunned with the power of the Spirit in the believer. Changed me forever. If you know Jesus, you speak Jesus. You're saying, I'm worried, Pastor. I do know Jesus, but I'm worried, will I be able to speak Jesus? When it darkens for me, as I see it coming, will I have the power? It's not your power, friend. From my experience, it's his power. You just have to know him. If you believe in that burden, you know the real Jesus. And we will be strengthened, beloved. The last two when I close. He says, seven, if you believe in the fellowship the apostles share. We've seen that which we've seen and heard. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John's saying, listen, don't let any false teacher take you down the street to their false church because you're in the only true church. And when you're with believers, you know it. When you're with believers, you know it. We've moved to a lot of different neighborhoods in our life as a family. We've moved lots of times. And we've been in different environments and had to say hello to new neighbors and be a new. And we've always struggled with the fact that a lot of our neighbors clump themselves around each other because in our society, the word fellowship really doesn't exist. The word friendship does. And we've seen time and time again that so many of our secular friends, they fellowship around what's. What interests them? what school their kid might go to together, what they drive, what they're doing to the house this weekend, what sport team they're in a tribe for. Our world connects around the what. Listen, true believers, we connect around who? A who, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We connect around someone that we all know even before we meet each other. Again, in my small travels around the world, I've been able to walk into settings in different cultures where I have met believers for the first time, totally different backgrounds, socially, politically, economically, linguistically, personally, in every episode of, of the what of life. Nothing in common. And in minutes... We are bound together. And even if you're doing it through an interpreter, you're rejoicing not in the what, but in the who. Because John says, beloved, there's a fellowship. It's a fellowship of those who have seen Jesus, who have heard Jesus through the word that was preached, who've met Jesus through the gospel that changes. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and it's with you. I tell you, what's my hope that this church builds itself around? It's not even that I hope that we build it around just the Bible, but the Christ of the Scripture, who he is. You see that? You're seeing true believers. Here's the last. Let me review just, just real quickly. Number one was, if you believe in the Jesus the apostles knew from the beginning, then you know the true Jesus. Two, if you believe in the teachings the apostles heard, then you know the true Jesus. Three, if you believe in the miracles that the apostles saw, then you know the true Jesus. Four, if you believe in the risen one that the apostles touched with their own hands, then you know the true Jesus. Five, if you believe in the new life that the apostles tasted, then you know the true Jesus, this Jesus, the word of life. Six, if you believe in, in the burden to proclaim him, 
that the apostles had, this, that which we have seen, we proclaim, Paul says, then, or John says, then you know the real Jesus. And seven, if you believe in the fellowship that the apostles had and that all Christians share, then you know the true Jesus. So what's, no, what's number eight? If you believe, you know the real Jesus. And he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Another way of putting this is, if you understand the first seven that I just taught you, you don't need to me, explain, me to explain number eight. Because if you believe the first seven, you have some level of Christian joy in your heart. You can't believe those seven things and know the Lord in that way and not have a little joy. You say, well, it's been a bad week. Well, it's still down under, just dig. And you will still find a little bottom line of knowing that he's with you and you're with him. And though it's really, what's really important in life is yours. And you have what we would call today contentment. Contentment. Well, that's true Christianity. That's classic Christianity. So I open this message with a question. Can you ever really know the true Jesus in a spiritually confused culture like ours? And I gave you eight answers that say absolutely. Because John's culture was like ours. Believers then and believers now can truly and deeply know him. Let me close with a different question. Having heard everything, can you in your heart of hearts say, yeah, I do know Jesus. I do know the true Jesus as my Savior. Friend, if you do, hallelujah. If you're wondering, I'm here to talk. After service, we're going to sing just here in a moment. The worship team comments in just a second. If there's a tugging in your heart that says you may not know him, you come to me and I will help you find him. Thank you.